Hey, what's up? And welcome back, storytellers. We recently celebrated our four-year anniversary here at 88 Cups of Tea and set aside something super special just for our Patreon family. Four patrons won the chance to interview for a 10-minute segment to be stitched at the end of our upcoming podcast episodes. The first segment featured the lovely Melissa Bobby, and you can tune into her conversation at the end of Jason Reynolds' episode. Our second segment featured storyteller Sarah Adams, which you'll find attached to Christine Riccio's episode. And our third segment was with Angeline Bully, which you'll hear at the end of our most recent episode with Maggie Steve Otter. And today, for our fourth and final segment, we have Melissa C. from our 88 Cups of Tea community. Melissa and I chat about her current project, you, me, and our heartstrings, and the inspiration behind her story. She shares the most challenging moment of her life so far and how our fellow storytellers helped her rediscover her confidence and creativity to finish her first draft. Melissa also shares her experiences in the querying trenches and how she hopes to impact her future readers with her novel. Now on to today's conversation, we have Kelly Barnhill, the award-winning author of The Girl Who Drank the Moon, the Witch's Boy, Iron-Hearted Violet, and the mostly true story of Jack, as well as the novella, The Unlicensed Magician. She's been on the New York Times bestseller list for weeks, as well as the indie bestseller list. She was also a McKnight Artist Fellowship recipient in children's literature. In our conversation, we talk about Kelly's love for telling stories out loud and how this shaped her writing process. We walk down memory lane of her life adventures that impacted her creative career path to becoming a best-selling author and the lessons that helped her write with love and affection. Further in, we discuss how to instill a creative headspace, the importance of giving yourself a break during your drafting process, and powerful revision tools to help you overcome self-doubt. And later on, Kelly pulls back the curtain and gives us a peek into how she forms her stories and creates a community that helps her through tough days. Storytellers, be sure to check out the incredible writing prompt that Kelly crafted just for our community. The prompt will help you write without fear and spark some new ideas for your stories. To download it, head over to her show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Kelly dash Barnhill. Now let's dive right in. Hello, lovely storytellers. We have Kelly Barnhill with us today. Kelly, how are you? I'm great. It's a beautiful day in Minnesota. Oh my gosh, Kelly. I'm so excited to have you here. A lot of our listeners are very excited to have you. And just FYI, you have several listener questions for you towards the end, if you don't mind, because you have quite a lot of fans. I don't mind at all. Oh my gosh. Amazing. Amazing. So why don't we just kick it off? Because I know I have you for a certain amount of time. So let's just make the most out of it. Why don't we start off with your earliest memories of storytelling or how you fell in love with storytelling? That's a really good question. You know, I came to storytelling really through oral and aural storytelling. I was a delayed reader as a kid, and like a lot of delayed readers, I was really good at pretending to read. That's what happens with delayed readers. I think in education, they call it learned reading behaviors. So I knew that you should hold a book, and I knew that you should turn the pages, but just that whole like cognitive piece just hadn't clicked for me for really a long time. I like to tell 
kids this when I visit because I think we put so much pressure on young children that I think because of that, they kind of lose their kind of will for it and their kind of desire for it and their love for it because it becomes so scary and kind of like demeaning to them. So I was a delayed reader. Uh, I was also the oldest kid in a family of five. And I I have a lot of cousins and they were often in the house. And also my parents were really close friends with a lot of other couples that all had children, but they were all younger than me. Like they're the oldest kids of those families were the same age as the kid who was, you know, two kids down from me. And so as a result, I was like often the big kid with a bunch of little kids. And, you know, when you live in a big family, you get kind of accustomed to being sort of in charge. I was awesome at being in charge. And because I was often sent outside to be in charge of the younger kids, what I would do is I would tell stories to them. And I would tell all kinds of like, just really sort of wacky stories um, about, you know, how there are you know, people that live in the trees and they come out during the nighttime. Or I would tell them about like little flower fairies or I would tell them how like the squirrels take their skin off sometimes and they're like little people. We lived by a large lake in Minneapolis. Minneapolis has a lot of lakes. And at the time, the lake was called Lake Calhoun, but now it's been reverted to its original Dakota name, Bidimikaska. So we lived right by there. And I used to tell stories about this terrible monster that would like come slinking out of the lake and it would eat their toes. And I got in trouble for that. And actually I got grounded from telling stories because I made my cousin pee the bed that night. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. (laughs) But I loved stories that were out loud. You know, one of my tasks starting from the time I was really little was to put my younger siblings in the wagon and to walk down to the library just to give my mom a little sort of peace and quiet. And we would go to the library and wander around and you know get picture books or whatever. And I loved they used to have a lot of books on actual records that were like radio plays from the BBC. I loved those so much. And I would bring them home. I had this little record player that I bought with my own money at a garage sale. It was made by Fisher Price. It was one of those plastic record players that was like cream and orange, you know? And I would go in my closet because I shared a room with siblings. So being in my closet was like the only place where I could be alone. And I would listen to like, you know, the BBC dramatic reading of whatever it was, Kidnapped or or Treasure Island or The Hobbit or whatever. And I loved it so much. So I loved that. And my parents read to us when we were little, you know, read all of C.S. Lewis and read, you know, Great Expectations to us and all these different things. And so I loved the way that stories sounded. So for me as a little kid, stories were the things that you share to a group, right? And it wasn't until I was older that I was like, oh, a book is just for yourself and you read by yourself. No, stories were out loud and they sort of existed in this liminal space between the person telling it and the person listening to it. And even now as a writer, I do almost all of my writing out loud now. My dog, Sirius Black, is an excellent listener, and he sort of sits at attention. And, you know, I'll do, like, however many pages I want to get done 
for that day. And I'll stop every once in a while and I'll kind of read a paragraph out loud a few times just to make sure it's landing right. But I'll start my writing session by reading out loud what I had done yesterday. And I will end my writing session by reading out loud what I have just done, just to make sure it feels right in the mouth and it feels right in the chest where it sort of resonates, you know. So anyway, stories were always things that were out loud and shareable. When you were younger, did you know that this was a viable career, that these people who are telling these stories, you can actually have a career as an author, or did you not realize that till a lot later in life? Oh, heavens. (laughs) Uh, No, I did not. And, you know, I mean, I think, I mean, yes and no. I had some experiences as a younger kid where it sort of erupted in my consciousness that, oh, I can do this, right? I had an experience in seventh grade where I had this really awesome English teacher named Sister Geron, who gave us this unit where we had to write a a short story every single week for six weeks, which is really hard. Oh my God, it was so hard. I don't know if I could do it now. And I'm a grown up and this is my job, you know? But that was the first time when I was just like, oh, this comes easily to me. It wasn't that it was easy, it was hard, but it came naturally to me in a way that, you know, a fast runner has to work hard at being a fast runner, but it still comes naturally, you know? And that was that was a cool feeling to me. And of course, I mean, all of my stories, I mean, this was when I was deep into my, what my mother calls the Anne of Green Gables years. And so all of the stories, but you know, like everybody dies in them. Like I really had this great fondness for terrible tragedies, right? And so that was amazing for me. And then later on my senior year, I I had a chance to write up the libretto for an opera through this program with um, Minnesota Opera. We wrote and composed and directed and got to use opera resources to like put on this opera. It was this amazing thing. It was an amazing program that only lasted one year because all of the adults who ran it were like, oh my God, this is way harder than we thought. But of course, all the teenagers were like, this is amazing. I'm not in school. I'm with all these really creative grownups. I'm doing this really cool thing. And then we put on a show just like, you know, those old movies when they do it in a barn. And we got to use actual like costumes from the opera costume shop. It was amazing. And that was the first time when I had this like long-term project that I had to return to again and again and again each day and had that sense of kind of non-self that you get when you're in that place of flow that I don't exist anymore. It's just the only thing that exists is this thing that I'm focusing on and, and working on and the whole world kind of falls away. That's an amazing feeling. But of course, both with both of these, I instantly forgot about it and was like off to the races doing all these other things that I was going to do. I was going to change the world. I was going to become a doctor. I was maybe going to become a nun. All kinds of things that I thought were going to happen in my life, all kinds of directions that I was going to take. So when I started college, I was a pre-med student and I was taking, you know, general chemistry and general biology and I was taking math. And then I needed, you know, one other class. And so I thought, oh, I'll do creative writing. It's only one day a week. And that sounds easy. And the woman who was teaching it was this woman named Janice Agee, who's this amazing novelist. And it changed my direction. That was when I first was like, oh, I think I'm going to be a writer. 
And then I graduated college and promptly stopped writing for another 10 years because it was my 20s. And I, you know, uh, again, was going to change the world. And I was also sort of like feeling very uprooted. My husband and I, we moved to Florida and we became park rangers. And I got trained in wildland firefighting. I got trained in search and rescue. We went down to Portland because we were young in the 90s and we had to live in Portland because it was basically the law. And And I lived in Portland with a bunch of anarchists, and that was really fun. And then, you know, then I was 25 and, you know, pregnant and about to start our family. So we moved back here. And and so, like, my 20s were exploratory, but it was also, like, building my family. So by the time I was 30, I had three kids and was on unemployment because I was laid off from my teaching job and needed something to do. And I started freelance writing. Then I started accidentally starting to write fiction. And then I started writing fiction all the time. Mama Mia, we going to rewind and unpack. <laughs> Did you end up graduating with a pre-med degree or you ended up totally switching after that creative writing class and switched your major and graduated with a creative writing degree? I did. Well, it was an English degree with a creative writing concentration. And then also um, I minored in theology. So I really took a hard left turn, which was awesome. And it was the right thing for me. And I had amazing teachers at St. Kate's. And I wrote all the time when I was young. I wrote so much during those four years. And I felt like I was sort of floating on this well that would never run dry is what it felt like to me. And, you know, my senior year was when I met my husband. We were working at a place called Acorn. It was the lone voice in the wilderness um, telling people that the financial collapse was coming. But that's what we were working for. And, you know, in this place of idealism and whatever. And I was writing like crazy and I was falling in love. And I was like in this place of the world is going to change. We're going to stop corporate welfare. We're going to do all this stuff. Like we were so entranced with that. And a couple of things happened. You know, first of all, I graduated. Second of all, like every single one of our campaigns was completely you know, trounced by large money. And like that was really kind of devastating for us. And also, you know, we were not sure where we wanted to stay. We were feeling sort of unrooted and sort of that kind of post-college ennui that, you know, that hits people when you realize, oh, nobody's going to give me an A in anything anymore, which is kind of devastating. And also that nobody is really super interested in the questions I raise and this whole life of the mind that I've been in. I have to actually super seek that out as an adult. That's I think, is hard for a lot of young people. And it did sort of knock the wind out of our sails, I think. And then the most amazing thing was that I graduated from college and this like just tsunami of words that I felt like I could not even keep up with. It just stopped. And I found that I had nothing to say and nothing to write about. And of course, none of that was actually true. But I do think that there was this need that I wasn't able to see at the time, that I needed to be in the world in a different kind of a way. I mean, my poor parents, oh God, my poor parents, <laughs> were just like, okay, we have a free place to stay in Florida and we're going to go for the summer. And so we're just like, we're just going to go there with like our oddball sort of like low rent friends. <laughs> and it was a terrible place. I mean, we were like in this little beach town. And if there's anything that can like say, oh, you, you got to make some plans. You, it's, 
spending the summer in Florida. Like there's just a lot of people who haven't made plans for a long time. Anyway, so that was for a summer. And then I was trying to figure out what my place in the world was, you know, then we came back to Minneapolis and working in a at-risk youth after-school program, teaching creative writing. And I really liked that. I liked being able to share stories in that kind of way. And I thought maybe I do want to be a teacher. And then we went to um, Olympic National Park and we, our ranger station was a 25 mile hike in any direction to get there. And it was this place of beauty and wildness. And, you know, each step that I took, one of the things that I think I learned in terms of how it affects me as a writer. I've written this a lot, that the act of reading is an act of radical empathy. I think that is true with writing as well. I think it's true more so, right? Because we inhabit the world in a very real way. And we inhabit these lives and we have to create these characters in this place of total love and affection, even when they do monstrous things, right? And we have to operate on this assumption that no matter what, we are all unique, we are all precious, and we are all beloved, right? And that is a hard thing to know about when you are only 21 and you don't have much, right? I had to learn that in pieces. I had to learn that in inches in order for me to come back to the page and to be able to make that happen again. Do you mind reminding me how many years was it when you were the park ranger and surrounded by wilderness? Like, was that years? It was only two summers. Wow, that's still a lot. It is, but we also, my, in my family, we camp all the time. And actually, of my four novels that are out, three of them were started while in a national park and, and while camping. And so... In Minnesota, we have, and actually this is, that's not entirely true because one of them is not a national park. It's a national forest, but the BWCAW, which is um, Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness is up at the top of Minnesota. So part of it is in Minnesota and part of it is in Canada. And it's this massive, massive wilderness area that is just filled with lakes and rocks and wolves and granite. And it's the clearest water in the world. And you go in there and you hike to the lake with your canoe on your shoulders and you put the canoe in the water and you paddle across the lake until you get to the end of the lake and then you put your canoe back on your shoulders and you hike to the next lake and it is not for the faint of heart at all or or for the you know week of back (laughs) (laughs) but you know you're out there and you're you're surrounded by wind and water and there's these you know ancient petroglyphs that are there and it's just this amazing place And, you know, you stare up at the sky. And I think one of the things that binds us is, you know, sort of these weird structures that we put ourselves in. Like we surround ourselves with with right angles, right, in our homes, in our offices, in our buildings. And there aren't a lot of right angles in nature. We put roofs over our head, but the sky is infinite, right? And so I do think that there is something to be said to just sort of, you know, I mean, channel our inner Walt Whitman and just lie down on the grass, you know? I think it's important for just our creative self. And and I do notice that too with me, both in terms of just like mood management and whatever, sort of basic mental health stuff, but also in terms of creativity. There's this really awesome dog park near my house that is just this huge woodsy area and a two mile loop through the woods. Wow. Are you joking? Oh, have you seen our dog parks here in New York City? Oh, I have. And I'm very sad for you. I love New York City, but you know, 
know, I'll tell you what. I live in Minneapolis. I live in the middle of the city. I've got a creek that bends around my house. I've got willow trees and all these like wild areas, like literally right here. There's 36 kids that live on my block and like creative parents. We live on a dead end street. The kids just play stickball in the street. And I can ride my bike to this awesome like wooded path. And it takes me probably 15 minutes to get there. And yet I am walking distance to the light rail. I'm walking distance to six different bus lines. I can walk to the library. I can walk to the grocery store. I can walk to the liquor store and I can now walk to a bookstore. I need nothing else. Oh my God, what a dream. Right? I can take the train. I can like from my house to the airport using public transportation takes me about 20 minutes, 25 minutes. Same with downtown. Oh my God, thanks a lot for rubbing it in. That's great. That's totally fine. (laughs) You actually get a real house. Rather than a closet. I know, and have a yard. It's nice having a yard. My dog loves it. I do want to get more into your writing because I know that the listeners are really excited to learn. Going into like you're now settled and feeling very, you know, lived with life and also having multiple books under your belt. How do you feel are some of the challenges you've come across now? that you may not have when you first started? So first of all, and this part is really important because I think a lot of people get bogged down by this idea that this all gets easier, right? And then when it doesn't get easier for them, I think that that is why people fall away from writing and fall away from a a life of writing because this seems like this should be easier by now. And if it's not, it means that maybe I'm not cut out for it. When in fact, it never freaking gets easier, right? It stays hard. Like this job is just really hard and it stays really hard. And I think that, that that's important for people to remember, right? This job breaks our hearts in a million different ways. We still, no matter what happens, no matter how many you know, short stories you've published, how many books you've published, you know, how many hands your work has has landed in, how many eyeballs have been on it, no matter what, it still is really difficult because in the end, it's just you at your desk. And it's you with all of the crap that we bring to it, right? All of the insecurities, all of the wounds that we carry that we never actually get rid of, right? All of the question marks, all of the ways in which we are smaller than we should be, all the ways that we are not as kind as we should be, all of the ways that we are more biased than we should be, all of those are there, when we come to the page. And it is this insurmountable sort of Herculean task to be able to climb over all of that, to make something happen, to make a sentence happen, you know, to make a character happen, to make a scene happen. It's really a lot of work. And it really is, I mean, self-doubt is toxic. And we all have it. We all, and we all have to sort of sit with it, this poisonous, terrible sludge because it's hard to get rid of, right? So I think that that was sort of a big aha moment. Oh, it doesn't actually get easier. Well, you know what? That's actually good to know because the fact that it's not easier doesn't mean that I'm doing something wrong, right? I tell this to kids all the time when I see kids because I tell them 
how many drafts each of my books took between, you know, sort of first draft. I mean, and it's actually more, it's always one more than what I'm saying because I number all of my drafts in my computer, but all of my books start longhand. So that's draft zero. Mm. So I tell them, you know, how many drafts each one is. And it's just, the shocking number. I won't even get into it right now because uh, <laughs> it might make make people have a bad day. But I tell I tell it to children. And the reason why I tell it to children when I visit them is that I think one of the things that stops a lot of kids from thinking themselves as a writer, even though really we are all we're all storytellers, all of us, we, yes. because we have human brains, right? Mm. And human brains are narrative in their function. Mm. Uh, we use story to make sense of information. We remember the past in stories. We plan for the future in stories. We teach in stories. We learn in stories. We dream in stories. We even worry in stories. I mean, anxiety is just a narrative dysfunction, right? Mm. So is depression. And so they are actually all storytellers. And everybody listening right now is a storyteller. That's what being a human being is. We're monkeys who tell stories, right? But I think that for a lot of kids, you know, because they read a lot and kids read a lot, like there's a lot of hand wringing about how kids don't read a lot. They do. They read a lot. Like I ask kids to tell me what books I should read. I always get recommendations from children when I visit schools and they all give me infinity books, right? You know, they read. But the thing is, I think that causes this sort of like discrepancy for them. And that can be a painful discrepancy because they know what good fiction looks like and they know what good writing looks like because they see it a lot. And then they write something and they're like, oh, this isn't very good. Therefore, I must not be good at this, mm. right? And so I always tell them that you never see anybody's first draft. <laughs> you know? mm. All of my first drafts are terrible. And so I will go through just the numbers of drafts for each of these books. And they're like, what? And I say, I tell you this, not so that you are disheartened. I tell you this to give yourself a break, right? Because you don't, have to be perfect. You don't even have to be okay. And it still is good to write that story, right? Because your story is a gift to the world. And you have all the time in the world to go back and back for draft 10, draft 25, draft 35, draft 45, and go back again and again and make things bit by bit incrementally better right? And that's what being a writer is, is improving by centimeters, right? Yes. Oh. And I wish I knew that earlier because I would have saved myself a lot of grief. How many of these quote unquote terrible drafts are we talking about? Just so that it gives people listening in like a break to know, hey, you're not alone. You're not the only one sludging through this or having like a crappy time right now during the beginning phase. I will tell you that my first book, uh, Mostly True Story of Jack, I revised 45 times. So there <gasps> are 45 like numbered. Um, and that is the sh that is the smallest number. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. Now we're talking about revisions super quick. If anybody is struggling, not knowing when to stop revising. I think that's also a problem with artists. And my grandfather himself being a painter, he just will keep repainting over his canvas. Yeah. And I'm like, grandpa, it was beautiful <laughs> and perfect. Please stop splattering paint all over again. It's a hindrance that we all have. Any tips that you can share with our community for those who are constantly revising and just don't know when to stop and pull the brakes? 
Okay, so I have some different strategies for revising, and some of these are going to be useful for other people, and some of them are not. Mm. So first of all, I think that it's not a totally great idea to do substantive um, revising while you are working through the draft. I think that it's better to have a, a notebook that you keep on the side of like, okay, yeah, yeah, I need to change this, or I need to work this around, or, you know, this character needs to be an alien, or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Whatever you're going to do. My first book, I just kept on going back and back and erasing and then revising and then erasing and revising. And it just took a long time. You know, my my revision strategy has all has often been select all delete and sort of starting over from scratch. And this is the reason for this is because long ago, I wrote a book that won't ever be published, but was important for me to write, you know, and I'm still really proud of it. And I'm, I'm glad that I wrote it. It was how I learned how to write a book. But I was probably about 200 pages in when my laptop caught on fire. Oh, hell no. What are you talking about? What I does know. that mean? Yes. Like it was like this ancient Dell computer. My husband had gotten it for me because he was just like really wanted me to write again. And we were so broke. I, he got it off of eBay. Oh my God. Oh, I love your husband already. I know. I love him so much. He's so great. But it was real. It would always run real hot. Those, those old Dells, they always would run real hot. And it burst. It just like fire. Like fortunately, I'm also married to an Eagle Scout. So we have like several fire extinguishers around the house. So I got it out right away. But like everything was gone, you know, and I had this experience of, you know, crying for a week. But after that, uh, being like, okay, I actually already know these characters. I already know this world. I already know what's at stake. And I was able to start from the beginning in this place of clarity. And it was kind of an awesome experience. And so then for a long time, I would just erase everything and recompose from memory. I do that. I mean, I still do that, but I don't erase it anymore because my husband told me that it gave him an ulcer. Oh my God. And uh, I was just too stressful for him. That's when I started to number my drafts. And not all of them are recompositions from memory. Just really only that's like draft two or draft three is that. After that, then I'll start to just copy everything onto a new piece of paper or a new document and then start making my sort of alterations as I go. And then I'll kind of look back and forth to see which one I like better, blah, 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 whatever. But the other thing too is... I teach in the MFA program at Hamlin, and I I do tell my students all the time that um, uh, hearing themselves read their work out loud is an incredibly powerful revision tool because our eye forgives all kinds of stuff, but our ear is a bastard. And it just, it forgives nothing, right? But it's important, especially when you're writing middle grade, because middle grade readers, first of all, like, Middle grade books are often read out loud in classes, right? So it needs to work as a read aloud. But also middle grade readers are still voicing the sentences in their heads. It's like that little internal voice that's reading to them. We don't start like just reading sort of silently in interior in our interior brains until we're much older. And so which means that it does need to work as though it's a read aloud because they are basically reading aloud in their heads. And so I I have them, and I do this too, I'll print out the section that I'm working on and I'll read it out loud and record myself. And then I will listen to myself and I'll write sort of like instructions and revisions and changes and notes on the piece of paper as I'm listening to myself. And I really like doing that a lot. I think it really helps to figure out how the whole thing lays in the ear, you know, and to kind of tune it a little bit. 
think is helpful. The other thing too, is that I can say what I think, then I can be honest with myself. So first of all, I'll say what I think. What I think is that it's never perfect and that you should just send it off no matter what, right? Because particularly when you're already working with a with an editor and an agent, because there is this sort of process of the back and forth that is kind of like a refiner's fire where uh, you sort of like get different inputs. And it doesn't mean that you follow all of the instructions to the letter, but you harmonize with it. You realize, oh, they're having an issue here, but this is actually not, they're not correct that it's this thing. It's actually this thing over here that's going to make this thing work better or whatever, right? But it's a very dynamic process. I love the revision process. That being said, I do recall a moment with my beloved editor, Elise Howard, who is a genius and a wonderful human being. And when I was, I was just unable to let the thing go. And I do recall a conversation that I had with her on the phone where she said the following words to me, I am not hanging up this phone, young lady, until you hit send. So... Like going to wait until she saw that email in her inbox until she hung up and she was not going to let me off that phone. So anyway, I mean, sometimes we have to have people in our lives to keep us honest, right? Yes, absolutely. And say, all right, hit send. It doesn't actually have to be perfect. Just have to get the thing moving. It makes total sense that you teach at MFAs because just everything you say, I'm absorbing so much and I'm feeling so inspired. Before I jump into the listener questions that are super specific, something you brought up which really resonated with me very deeply yet again was when you were talking about how you had words flowing out and then it stopped when you graduated, right? And then for your 20s, you were exploring. So I'm going to ask this selfishly for myself, but also I'm sure there's lots of listeners, okay, who are feeling the same way because I've I've kind of eavesdropped on conversations in our private Facebook group, seeing Mm -hmm. that some people have this concern about pressures of timeline. And for me, I'm going to use myself as an example. Yeah, I used to be able to have words come out and just flow out like a waterfall, no problem. And I don't know what it was, if it was just like maybe that one one class with the workshop teacher that I admired mentioned like, you know, your writing is beautiful, but it's just too poetic and you got to like cut that out and you should write like this other thing that you wrote because that's good writing. Mm-hmm. And then I just started to freeze up to the point where I was judging every single word that I was writing and I just stopped. And I had this idea in my head oh, yes, by the time I am 22 or 25, I'm going oh, to have no. a published book, right? No. <laughs> and that's the way my brain has always worked. It's terrible, but I think it's also my upbringing. It's very, especially raised by immigrant upbringing, just a lot of pressure because, you know, they sacrificed a lot mm-hmm. coming here for me mm-hmm. and especially wanting to go into the arts, becoming an actor. It's even more pressure where it's like, I need to really prove to them that thank you for believing in me and not giving me so much shit about it. So it's like so much on top of it where I'm like, okay, now with my writing as well, like by the time I'm 25, I wanted this. Like by the time I'm 25, I need to have a movie. I need to have a a TV show. I need to have a book published. And then the acting stuff I accomplished. But with writing, I just stopped after that class. And now I'm over 30 and I feel so much pressure Sometimes, not all the time. There are days where I'm like, you know what? I'm learning what I got to learn. It's all good. Just flow with time. Other times, other days, 
I feel a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, oh shit, I'm such a failure. Like I have nothing accomplished in my 30s. Like I was a go-getter, mm-hmm. 20s. I'm still a go-getter, but where are the results? These results are not showing the way I wanted them to. Yeah. Even though mm-hmm. outsiders tell me, they're like, oh my gosh, you have everything. But I'm like, well, oh my gosh, you don't understand how much more I need to accomplish. And I'm not mm-hmm. even like an inch into it. So I, I think I particularly gravitate towards asking you is because of knowing that you had these years where you allowed yourself to really grow inch by inch, you were saying, and really evolve as a human being and really being in the world and learning. And you couldn't do that if you didn't allow yourself that time. And now you are an accomplished, totally accomplished and very well-achieved author, award-winning, multiple books under your belt, and and a really sounds like a beautiful, happy family, which is always I like you know the dream in a dream neighborhood. Like it sounds now like you have everything. So and it's just like I think I ask you because I feel like almost giving myself assurance that it's gonna be okay. And like for anyone else listening in, like if you have anything to say about girl, like drop that pressure and like <laughs> think something to help us with our morale and our mental state. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So I have a few things to say. First of all, you know, when my third child was born, I I was 30 by the time I had three kids Mm. and I just started telling people I was 40. Right. Because I figured I did. I was just like, you know what? I've got three kids in the minivan. It doesn't matter what I tell people. They're (laughs) going to hear 40 anyway. So I might as well just feed them to it. And so I was 40 for a lot of years. I'm 45 right now, but I was 40 for a lot of years. And so much that once I actually became 40, I kept on forgetting how old I was. And I was like, wait, I would have to like do math, which I'm terrible at. And that was difficult. But I'll tell you what, I actually loved turning 40. If I had known how amazing it was, I would have done it for real for years. (laughs) But I'll tell you what, I think the main thing is that these sort of external pressures, because I'll tell you what, I had them too. When I first graduated, I was like, thought I was going to be a poet. And so I also thought like, I'll never get married. I'll live in some terrible Garrett apartment in New York City. And I'll like, you know, have martini lunches with my editor because I thought those things happened. And that I would like have the Walt Whitman Award by the time I was you know, 24 or whatever. I had those things too. And they were complete nonsense, right? I think that they're objectively harmful. And I think that probably there was that part of my brain that knows how to protect itself. My guess is that that was the part of my brain that was like, nope, we're not doing this right now. We're doing other things. And didn't let that part of me start to flow again until it was safe to do so. I do think that that's true. But I do think that the main thing that we need to do is love our lives and love the world and love every person in it. And boy, oh boy, is that ever hard to do. I mean, literally everyone. In order for us to accept that the world is precious and that all of its creatures are precious, then that means even monstrous things are precious too. And being able to hold all of that in a non-judgmental way is really hard, despite even wanting to, you know, also wanting to change the world and fighting for justice and all that. Like those things can happen at the same time. Being able to hold opposite things and recognize that those opposite things are both true. That's hard to do. And it is necessary for us to do. So I think the way that that translates to a life of the writer 
is recognizing that there are going to be times in our writing life when our family life or our neighborhood life or our friend life or the life of you know being an active citizen in a broken world, right? That those will subsume our writing life and that's okay. There's no rules for this. There's no rules for any of it. The only rule is to love what you're doing and to love the world that you're in, right? And to bring that love to our life as a thinker. So you can be a storyteller and a writer, but you're a thinker first. And that thinking and that sort of compassionate way of being is what drives us forward. So if you write the book that changes somebody's life, who maybe was, you know, was estranged from their family and returned or changes somebody's life who maybe was on the brink of suicide and manages to embrace health and move towards a place of wellness. If you are able to change somebody's life, realizing that they're just on the wrong path, then it doesn't matter when that book comes out. It doesn't matter if that book comes out when you're 22 or 42 or 72. Ursula Le Guin didn't publish her first book until she was in her late 40s. Look what she did. Look at the lives she changed. Look at how she changed literature. It doesn't matter when that happens. And in the end, the only thing that we can do, our only responsibility is to connect. And we can connect with one person and that matters, or we can connect with an entire nation and that matters, but the numbers don't matter just the fact of the connection. There's this really wonderful book called Gould's Book of Fish. I forget who wrote it. There's this line in it that I will always remember. The act of reading and the process of literature and the act of writing, the reason why we do it is so that we can become more than ourselves, that we can become people with souls. That is the main thing, that when we remove ourselves from any sort of idea of like the tyranny of the should right? The tyranny of the should is mean. There is no should in writing. There's no, there's not, I should be published by this date. There's no, I should have achieved these different things. The only should is actually paying attention and understanding that all things matter, right? That's the only should that we need to pay attention to. Everything else is just noise, Yes. I have so much tremendous respect for you and admiration. Thank Thank you for that. Thank you. I really took that in. I was cheering up as you were saying that. So thank you so much. Well, I think you're excellent. (laughs) You are beyond excellent. And I can't imagine how much this entire conversation is going to really hit home for our entire community. You have no idea. And if you don't mind, can I jump in to the listener questions for Please. you? Amazing. So we have Elizabeth Newton. She was so happy to hear that you're going to be on the podcast. Hi, Kelly. Great to have you on the podcast. I read The Girl Who Drank the Moon and think it's brilliant. My question is, before all of this writerly success, did you have moments of pause? Doubt if you should keep writing fiction? And if so, what kept you moving forward? Thank you. My first two books, uh, Mostly True Story of Jack and um, Ironhearted Violet, didn't sell particularly well, and in particularly Ironhearted Violet. And after that book came out, it didn't get the support that it needed, and it just kind of withered on the vine. And I got a real mean Kirkus review from that one, I'll tell you what. And I did kind of think, like, maybe I'm done. 
you know, and I was writing uh, Witch's Boy and uh, my editor had left Little Brown and I wasn't really sure if I still had a place there anymore. And I, I was really feeling very adrift. And at that same time, my next door neighbor committed suicide and it was really very sad and very terrible. And I really took it really hard, you know, and it was even harder because, you know, I work at home and she had this just beautiful little house. She loved her house so much. It was like this little doll's house. She was this voice actress and she was really talented. And it was really, it was unbelievably sad. And at the same time, you know, I was working on this book that I just felt wasn't becoming the thing that I wanted it to become. And I really didn't think it was going to go anywhere. And I wasn't sure if I would be able to sell it. And maybe, maybe I just needed to do something else, become a teacher again, work in politics again. I wasn't really sure. And I was living next door to this dead woman's house. It was like living next door to a coffin is what it felt because she died in that house. It was really terrible, right? And so I wrote to my writing group and I said, you know what? I know I sent you the book for your comments, but don't bother because I've erased it and I'm not going to write it anymore. And I think I might be done and so they wrote back to me saying, dear dummy, do you not know how email works? We all have copies of this. It's not actually erased. So I'm just going to send it back to you every week until you start writing again. So this is why everybody should have a writing group. And this is also why we need to have people in our lives to help us through hard days. And I was so glad that I did return to working on that book. I loved working on that book. And I do remember this moment, a family that I know that I've known for years and years, uh, we were friends with them in Portland. They live here in Minneapolis and they bought that house. And I remember waking up in the morning after like this whole sort of like uh, late summer and fall and winter of just this tight, tight silence and spring had come and my windows were open and their little girls used to wake up at like, I don't know, four in the morning. And they had come out into the yard uh, just as dawn was breaking. Um, and our backyards had this like park and creek behind us. So it's this really beautiful backyard and the eastern light was like coming through these trees. And I can hear these little girls laughing and they just sounded like birds. And it was this moment of embracing everything. And I went downstairs and I finished the book and I turned it into my agent that same day. <gasps> I know. Wow. What an incredible story. When you're talking about your writing group and it's uh -huh. so important that every single person should have a writing group yeah. and the way they were able to lift you up in such a dark moment. How did you go about finding your friends that you knew you could trust who can handle giving you, like, you know, they were very blunt and honest with you and saying, listen, this is not how email works. We are, we're giving yeah. you the feedback anyway. <laughs> I don't care how upset you are right now, but we're dragging you out of that cave. So it's pretty easy in Minneapolis because there's a gazillion children's authors in Minneapolis. Like oh. you can't throw a stick in a coffee shop without <laughs> hitting a children's author. I'm not even exaggerating. And part of that is that 
Minneapolis just has a lot of support for the arts. We have really excellent grants. We have lots and lots of arts organizations that have educational components. And so there's, there's creative jobs here. There's just a lot of creative people here. So it's, it's actually fairly easy here, I think, to form uh, writing groups. Uh, The way that I formed mine is that it was, it was a pre-formed group. There were some people that had all taken a class together at this writing organization called The Loft, which has also been like a huge support for me and for a lot of writers. And so they had all taken a short story class together and had sort of like formed this group through that and it had persisted. And then I had met a couple of them. It was one of the years when KidlitCon was in Minneapolis. And so we had all been there and I had connected with them like online prior, but it was the first time I had met them all in real life. And and they were like, oh, you guys, you should join our group. And so I did. And so that's one of my writing groups. I also have another one that is specifically science fiction, fantasy, horror uh, writing. So I'm one of the few people that does children's writing there that, that's more sort of grown-up focused, but I'll still show them my kids' stuff. So it's nice having more than one to get a different perspective. But then I also have, you know, sort of like my Thursday group where we don't share writing, but we, we just go and work at a particular coffee shop and, you know, sort of like talk through, you know, sticky plot things and also just work and gossip because, boy, do we love to gossip. <laughs> Those are such great ideas. And I know that your your home state is very, very wonderful for the arts because I noticed they produce some incredible podcasts out there as well. So let me jump into the next question. Christiana Doucette, she said, one of my favorite things about Kelly Barnhill's writing is her openings. Within a few paragraphs, I'm always hooked. I still think in awe of the beginning of the mostly true story of Jack. I'd love to hear about her process for those opening pages. Ooh, really good question. Mm -hmm. So here's a a thing about how I work. Once I know the book that I'm going to write, I can't write it for a while. Uh, I had to think about a book for a really long time, sometimes a number of years. So all of my books start with a box sort of like my own version of Dumbledore's Pensieve, you know, like it's a place for my thoughts to live, a physical place. And I'll put all kinds of stuff in there. I'll, you know, a sentence that pleases me. I'll often compose while I'm running. Um, I can hold like two to three pages of text in my head while I'm out for a run. I'll do automatic writing where I'll do, you know, conversations with, with characters. I'll put that in the box. I'll put things that I know that are true, histories, you know, thoughts on religion, like thoughts on clothing, all kinds of stuff goes in the box. I don't really read a lot of it, actually. I just sort of like mess with it, like Silas Marner with his with his precious gold, you know, like like running it through my fingers and stuff. It's not normal. Like none of this job is normal, you know. Like nothing that we do is like what normal people do. So I think that's also important to remember. But I have to think about a book for a long time because I have such an aural um, uh, sensibility for how a story needs to sound. Like I have to get a sense of what the soundscape of a story is and and what the diction is going to be and and how the sentences are going to work both how you say them out loud and how you hear them and how they how they hit you physically because writing is very physical and storytelling is very physical for me once that happens, once I sort of have sample test paragraphs where, okay, now it's starting to move. Now I, now I can hear it, right? That's when I'll start. And my openings are never my original openings. They always come later. So I'm trying to remember where I originally started Girl Who Drank the Moon. Um, 
I believe it was sort of basically in the middle of uh, chapter two. But that whole idea of like the little stories um, coming in, that came later. Uh, the whole idea of starting chapter two with Grand Elder Garland in his office, that came later. All of that came later. And the same with Mostly True Story of Jack. That opening didn't even come until like draft like 14 or 15. Originally, it started in San Francisco. Oh, wow. Like it didn't even start in, in Iowa. And there's this whole other character that got caught who was sort of like my version of Robin Goodfellow, you know, the mm. sort of like catalyst character that makes all kinds of stuff happen. I ended up having to take him out because he was too disruptive. But uh, I may put him back in. He was called the Mouse Boy. I really Cute. liked him a lot. He was foul-mouthed and really rude. <laughs> it was super fun to write. So uh, we'll see. He may show up in a different book. All right, last and final listener question is from Maria Jones. She said, I love The Girl Who Drank the Moon. It got me out of one of my reading slumps in graduate school, and I completely fell in love with the world and the characters. The evocative settings and distinct characters completely hooked me. I would oh. love to hear how, maybe through her revision process, she makes sure all her characters and settings are distinct. There's just so much magic there. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea how I do that. There's so many writers that are so organized and specific and kind of cerebral and how they construct their worlds and how they make sure that everything gets the time that it needs and they have charts and they have all kinds of stuff. I don't do any of that. I don't know how. I mean, so much of what I do is just intuition, which is, you know, it's a slower process and it's a lot of trial and error and it's a lot of sort of feeling my way through the dark. Like it's not physical, but it seems physical to me. So unfortunately, I can't actually tell her how I do that at all. I just keep on sort of like making these small changes and kind of rounding out the edges and sort of thinking through until they feel right. But one thing that I do do before, like the, I think the pre-writing does actually help in terms of getting to know the characters um, and getting to know them on their own terms, which I think is actually really helpful. Um, the automatic writing of just asking the character questions and having them respond in their voice is really helpful, I think. Uh, it's something I have my students do all the time. And I don't even remember when I started doing that. And I don't know why, but it just seemed like a good idea at the time. And I've continued to do it since. Kelly, you've been amazing. Could you please let everyone know what books you could recommend for everyone else to read whether to help improve their writing or to open their eyes to what really good storytelling is or even craft books. We love craft books here. So any any books that you could recommend, we'd love to hear. Okay, so first of all, there's a book that's called A Few Short Sentences About Writing and it's by, oh, cranky, <laughs> Berlin Kirk Klingenborg, which is a mouthful. It is an amazing book. It's revelatory. It breaks down everything that you thought you knew about writing and makes you see it from a totally different way and really makes you think about like the art of the sentence in a totally different way. It's really extremely wonderful. I really recommend that. I always recommend Ursula Le Guin's Steering the Craft is just a phenomenal book. Just read through it. It's not very long. Do the exercises. You will not regret it. Also, I think anybody can read literally any book by Karen Joy Fowler and do a close read and a close analysis of what she's doing in her fiction and how she is making. It's like every sentence is infused with light with her. 
That's amazing. And I'll tell you what, the book that the reason why I became a writer, the reason why I started writing fiction again was actually because of Louise Erdrich, specifically her book, The Last Report of Miracles at Little No Horse. It's a miracle of a book. It's really wonderful. I was nursing my baby and I just had these tall stacks of books from the library and just like go through them because I had one of those infants that um, my son was uh, was a little early and so he was real college. And so he just had to take his naps on my body. That's just what had to happen. And so the girls would be like wrestling with our dog on the ground with a bunch of toys. And I would just read books. And I read Last Report of Miracles at Little No Horse. And I read it basically in one sitting. It was such an astonishing book. And I got to the end and I started over and I read the whole thing again. And then I did that again. And that four times in a row, I just wanted to understand what it was that she was doing. It was um, a riveting piece of craft. And the next morning after I had read the book four times in a row, I woke up and I went to the computer. And for the first time in forever, I sat down and I wrote a story about a girl who walks to the edge of the water and transforms into a fish and swims away. And that's what started me writing again. And I think that's important for people to remember, too, that sometimes go through fallow periods and sometimes our fallow periods are really long um, and that we don't know what's going to be that trigger that brings us back into the life of the mind and the life of craft and the life of art. But I do think that it's important to recognize that fallow periods are sometimes necessary. Sometimes we have to let the fields just rest, right? And that we can be grateful for the fallow periods because it is important for the land to rest, but also to be aware that the thing that can start things going again and to start things producing again uh, can be unexpected. And that can feel like a miracle too. Kelly, what can we look forward to right now that you're working on or what are you excited about? Well, I'm working on two things right now. I'm working on a book for children called The Ogress at the Far End of Town. Ooh. And no. So that I have to turn in in January. And I'm also finishing up a book for grown-ups that's called When Women Were Dragons. Oh, I love your titles. Jeez. Thank you. So this was originally supposed to be a short story for an anthology about dragons. And yeah, I was going through another follow period and was actually unsure if I would start writing again. We had some health stuff stuff at home and like some, you know, whatever, a lot of stuff was difficult. And I was like, you know what, if I don't write again, it's fine. Right. You know, like I did think that. And so I said, okay, fine. I will write this short story for you. And then I wasn't sure what it was going to be. And then the Kavanaugh hearings happened. And it was the first time that she was acting in a professional theater, which meant that I was just driving her constantly. And she was 15 and I was 15 during the Anita Hill hearings. And it was so like I got the sense of vertigo, this thing that galvanized me and this thing that was galvanizing her. And it's the same damn thing. And I was feeling so angry. And there's some other things happening too that was sort of contributing to that. Some issues of, you know, Me Too stuff that was happening at her school and like all kinds of other things that was like, I was so mad at a lot of stuff. And so I was started to write this story that um, I just felt this need to write about a bunch of 1950s housewives who turn into dragons and eat their husbands. But also I wanted to just explore female rage 
Anyways, it's written as though it's an it's a memoir and it's a um, exploration of female rage. Incredible. When can we expect that? Good question. I have no idea. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, congratulations. I am so looking forward to it. I'll be the first in line to get my copy of the book. Kelly, you've been incredible. Thank you so much for your time and your brilliance and your transparency on the podcast. You have no idea how moved I was just sitting here listening and absorbing your creativity, your wisdom, your knowledge. Thank you so much. Please tell everybody where we can find you online to say hi and thank you for your time. You can find me on Twitter and it's at Kelly Barnhill or you can find me on Instagram because sometimes I leave Twitter in a huff. So FYI, (laughs) if I'm not there, I'll be back. But you can also find me on Instagram. I can't leave Instagram in a huff because I actually don't know how to erase it. So that's insufferable blabbermouth with a little, you know, line in between the two words, which my children make fun of all the time. But you know what? I'm sticking with it. And that wraps up my conversation with Kelly Barnhill. Kelly, thank you for such a heartfelt discussion packed with priceless life lessons and crafting tips. Storytellers, wasn't that inspiring? Now we're going to jump right into the short segment featuring your fellow 88 Cups of Tea storyteller, Melissa C. Congratulations, Melissa. We're so happy to have you on. What are you currently working on, your work in progress? Okay. Well, this has been a bit of a journey. First of all, thank you for having me. It's been a journey because querying and working on a project at the same time, for me, it doesn't really work. So it's a really complicated constrictive endeavor, but I finally started something and it's called You, Me, and Our Heartstrings. And yes, that's a pun. It's basically an own voices YA contemporary romance about a cellist with an anxiety disorder named Noah and a violinist with cerebral palsy named Daisy and them falling in love throughout their senior year at a really competitive music high school and their duet going viral and it turning into this massive inspiration porn because of Daisy's disability. It's got a really special place in my heart already and I'm really excited about it. What was your inspiration for this story? I was an orchestra kid in high school. I played violin, I want to say, from when I was in fourth grade to either my freshman or sophomore year of high school, we went to NISMA competitions. And NISMA is, stands for the New York State String Music Association. And it we got there and my orchestra won second in our bracket statewide. So that was a really intensive thing. And I just wanted to kind of have a book or write a book like that where all of the intense competition is part of that, but also just the love of music is also a part of that as well. So that, and in addition to me wanting more disabled YA rom-coms out there, because growing up, there really wasn't anything that reflected my own experience. And I'm, I'm changing that. And so are so many other people. And I'm just really proud of the work that we all do. Oh, wow. Congratulations. I'm proud of you too. Reflecting back on your work, what was the most challenging thing that you've encountered? Well, overall, when I found 88 Cups of Tea, it was when I was dealing with a really difficult part of my life where my depression and anxiety took my creativity away from me. So I wasn't able to write. I wasn't able to think of anything. I wasn't able to have confidence in myself as a writer. So that was really hard because I've been writing since I was seven years old. And 
So to have something that I'd been relying on for at that point in about two decades, it and to have it not be there anymore was just something I had never experienced and I would never wish that on anybody. Then when I got my creativity back after finding 88 Cups of Tea and after connecting with Tia and Jessica, hi ladies, I love you, connecting with them and having them believe in me and get this book that's in the query trenches off the ground. Because before them, I didn't even have a first draft of the book and I'd been working on it for four years at that point. And I hadn't even had a first draft wasn't done at all, which is not typical for me. Tia and Jessica sat me down and they were there to talk me down and to help me figure things out. And without them, I wouldn't have even finished a first draft. Oh, wow. I think that says so much about the power of friendship and community. Yeah, definitely it does. When you're brainstorming for new story ideas or for your next story, do you think you are now in a position where you feel that you're able to just carry through with the work? It varies from project to project because there are moments where I'll be writing a story and it'll just be in a knot where I can't undo it. And so I just sit back or I just put it away or Tia will tell me to that I'm not allowed to work on the project for a week and I listen to her. And so <laughs> then I and then I'll come back and see if it works. But with this one, with Yumi and her heartstrings, it had been an idea I had in the back of my mind for a while. I knew I wanted to eventually write a book about musicians. And then Noah and Daisy just popped into my head and they were very patient characters. They weren't screaming or yelling or demanding to be written. They just waited until it was their turn. And I somehow wrote Noah's first chapter with him being in the bathroom because his fingers bled because of orchestra, which happens. Mm -hmm, Yes. (laughs) Then it just flowed from there. And Noah and Daisy explore two different facets of myself because I have anxiety and I also have cerebral palsy. And Noah's anxiety disorder is deep and mine was deep for a while. It is, you wouldn't, you don't want to think about it. And as far as Daisy, I didn't fully accept or embrace the fact that I was disabled for a long time. I didn't really think of it as something that I could use to help publishing or help the or, or help a, my book or help anybody else. I just thought it was this weird part of me that I was never able to control. But with Daisy, she's Noah's opposite where she's confident because she has to be. So that's going to be a really interesting way for me to focus in on that side of my disability that I didn't focus on when I was a teenager. Ooh, I love that. So I know that you mentioned a little bit about the querying process, yes? And I <laughs> and you yes, and you know that, you know, our community, we get together in our private Facebook group and talk about what we've been up to, what the progress has been with our latest works. And there's quite a few people who have been having difficulty with querying. So if you want to share a little bit about your process with that, some words you can share to your fellow storytellers to just kind of help pick them up or just give them a little hope? Any words from your own advice from what you've been going through and dealing with firsthand? My process with querying, it started in March of this year. So it's been about six months. And basically, it started with PitMad, which is a Twitter competition that everybody should know about where you pitch your book and agents and editors can jump in and say they want to see more. And so... I started with that. And then I had a little list of agents that I wanted to query. So I would send out materials and get full requests or get rejections or get partials or whatever the case may be. And it's basically the most hellish process 
but the one that's the most exhilarating because you're putting your baby out there and you're either waiting for people to be like, I love this. Give me more. I'll get back to eight weeks or whatever with more feedback or a rejection or a form rejection, which basically has a copy and paste rejection or whatever. And it's just a really hard process. And you have to go into this process knowing that your work matters, but also taking stock of what's going on. Because if you are getting a good amount of full requests, you're doing good. You're fine. However, if you're getting a lot of rejections and it doesn't matter if it's form or personalized because every agent is different. Every agency has different policies. If you're getting a lot of rejections, then that is a moment to pull yourself back and think about what you're doing and think about if your work is ready. Because if it's not ready, it's going to show. And even if it is ready, agents are still going to reject you. Because what I find is really helpful for me is I have a color-coded Google Doc that is just, I think, 11 pages long at this point, and it has over 100 agents in it. And it essentially is color-coded depending upon if I've queried them, if they've rejected me, or or what sort of materials they have, a partial or a full, or if they just have the materials that I queried them with. And that having a sort of way to just look at the doc and see, okay, these are all gray, so it's done, which is rejection, or this is blue, so I've just queried them, or it's pink. So there's fulls and these agents, I'm waiting on their responses for everything. And will they probably be rejections? Yes, they probably will be. But here's the thing. Publishing is all about rejections. And eventually you will get the notion of the fact that rejections are water off a duck's back. Will they sting? Absolutely. I'm not going to just sit here and lie and say, oh, no, rejections, you'll just move past them. No, they'll sting. They'll hurt and you will be hurt. But the thing is, eventually they will be like water off a duck's back. You will just put them in your querying folder in your email and move on. That's basically all you can do because it's all we can do. A creative life is one full of rejection and you have to be ready to take that on. And Eventually, you will be. It may be this book, or it may be the book after that, or the book after that. But the thing is, all you need is that one yes, and then you're on to the next step. Oh, that was so good, Melissa. Thank you. What do you hope your future readers will get from your book? Okay, I'm going to pull back to a conversation that I had with Tia, Tia Bearden, who is also in our Facebook group. If you need a Southern writing mama, Tia and Jessica are two of the best people you could possibly talk to. <laughs> They're so lovely. <laughs> they are. They're beautiful and I love them. We were talking on the phone. I was spiraling where I was just convinced that my book in the query trenches, which is called All Kind of Perfect and basically is about a Hamlet musical and it's ridiculous, but I love it. In the creative trenches, you're always worried about something. I was talking to her and I was expressing how I was worried that our kind of perfect wouldn't go anywhere, that like nothing would happen, that like all of the agents who still have the full, because I think at the moment there are nine agents who have the full right now. And I was worried that it wasn't going to go anywhere, that like nothing would happen. It would just be years of work, years of my life just for nothing. I was talking to Tia about it and she said, Melissa, eventually you will have people come up to you and say something to the effect of, I've never seen myself in a book until right now. I haven't cried in this time throughout the career trenches. 
at all, which is a shock to me. But I nearly cried then because growing up, there was nothing about a kid with cerebral palsy that was written by someone with cerebral palsy. There are moments in the query trenches where I didn't have to think about them. I just wrote them down. There's a line in Our Kind of Perfect where Yuki, the male protagonist and love interest of Tessa, the female protagonist, they're having a conversation because Tessa refers to her left hand, which is the hand affected by cerebral palsy, as her bad hand. And Yuki looks at her and he says, Tessa, you don't have a bad hand. You have hands. And I was sitting at my desk and I remember like nearly sobbing. (laughs) I've never read a line like that before growing up at all. And if maybe there were books with characters that had cerebral palsy written by people who have an experience, maybe my view of my disability growing up wouldn't have been how it was. And I don't want the same for readers that are going to eventually be growing up with my books or every other disabled author's books. I want them to be able to read these books and think there are characters like me and they're falling in love and they're getting kissed and they're saving a Hamnet musical or an extremely talented violinist or a marine biologist or a game developer. I can be those things too. That's basically what I want. I want people who read my books to know that your disability doesn't define you. Society tells us that our disability defines us, but we know the truth. That's basically what I want people to know. Love that so much. Melissa, that was incredible. That was amazing. Please let our community know where they could find you on social media. Twitter, I'm at Melissa C. And this has been an extremely just long battle of my life because of my last name. My last name is not just the letter C. It's spelled S-E-E. So it's at M-E-L-I-S-S-A-S-E-E. And then I'm on Instagram as well at Melissa C. Writes. So pop on over there and you will see pictures of my cat as well as stuff that I bake. So hang out over there. All righty, storytellers, that wraps up our entire episode for today. Thank you for hanging out and listening in as always please be sure to stop by and say hi to Kelly Barnhill on Twitter at Kelly Barnhill or on Instagram at insufferable underscore blabbermouth. You can also stop by Melissa's Twitter at Melissa C or on Instagram at Melissa C writes. To download Kelly's writing prompt and to find all the resources and books mentioned in our conversation along with tweetable quotes and the timestamps of highlights throughout our entire conversation, head on over to Kelly's show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Kelly dash Barnhill. To keep up with all things 88 Cups of Tea, make sure to follow us on Instagram at 88 Cups of Tea. We love posting fun Instagram stories, announcing new podcast episodes and featured articles and essays, along with our favorite quotes from those episodes and written pieces. And my favorite part about Instagram is our Instagram story takeovers from some of your favorite guests that we've had on the show. So make sure to head over to Instagram.com slash 88 cups of tea to join in on the fun. For any of you who are looking for a super intimate space where you can meet fellow storytellers and experience what it's like to be a part of our community, come hang out with us in our private Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. We check in with each other on the daily and have weekly threads where you can update each other about your work in progress and your big wins for the week, recommendations for books and TV shows, and there's a whole ton of gifs in there. So if you have a smile on your face right now just from listening to that, you need to come hang out with us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. 
Have a super productive week and I'll catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that.